and welcome to Headline Talks, our podcast on European news coverage and those at the heart of it. My name is Marco Cassis. I'm the head of research at Headline News Facilities Productions in Brussels. What we all have to learn is what the peoples of Europe learned, and we are learning in Northern Ireland. Difference, whether it's your race or your religion or your nationality, is an accident of birth. And it's not something we should be engaged in conflict about. It's something we should respect. Speaking here is Jean Hume in 1998 in the European Parliament in Strasbourg. Hume was an Irish nationalist, politician from Northern Ireland and the Catholic leader of the Social Democratic and Labour Party. He was one of the central architects of the Northern Ireland peace process, which aimed to end the Troubles, a 30-year period of sectarian violence that had marked Northern Ireland since the late 1960s. The conflict had largely been between Protestant Unionists or Loyalists who wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom and Catholic Nationalists or Republicans who wanted it to become part of the Republic of Ireland. The peace process culminated in the signing of two peace agreements in the Easter of 98. One between most of Northern Ireland's political parties and the other between the Irish and British governments. Those became known as the Good Friday Agreement or Belfast Agreements. For his role in that process, Hume went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize in the autumn of 98, alongside British politician David Trimble, who was then the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party and would become First Minister of Northern Ireland from 98 until 2002. A few weeks after the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and ahead of local elections in Northern Ireland on the 18th of May, we took a deep dive into Northern Ireland's recent history and its political context today with a very special guest. I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled, to introduce today's guest to you. It is a journalist and author who is not only the world's biggest Brexit expert and podcast royalty, but also, as rumor has it, occasional stellar live singer and guitar player at European summits. <laughs> it is none other than Tony Conley, longtime Europe editor for the Irish public broadcaster RTE in Brussels. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Margot. How uh, accurate was that introduction? Uh, apart from the music, uh, it's um, well. Modesty would require me to to downplay my my Brexit expertise. Musically, I did. I am guilty of playing at one European summit a long time ago. Thankfully for my uh, journalistic colleagues, that was a one-off. But I, I I've I can be found playing music in other venues around Brussels from time to time. Well, rumor has it it was a a fabulous rendition of Weather with You by Crowded House and. It- Thessaloniki apparently hasn't been the same since. So. Well, yeah, that brings back some memories that I was hoping to keep uh, locked away. But uh. <laughs> Alas, alas, the podcast came in between. Yeah. Well, uh, the past few weeks, all eyes have been on Ireland and Northern Ireland to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which included high profile visits, including that of uh, American President Joe Biden in search of his Irish roots. How have the past few weeks been for you? They've been busy and yeah, a lot of reflection and looking back at the Good Friday Agreement, I mean, for me in particular, the emphasis has been on the Good Friday Agreement and Brexit because obviously I worked a lot on the impact Brexit had on Ireland, North and South, and a lot of the reference points for all the negotiations over the past six years on Brexit have been around the Good Friday Agreement and the extent to which Brexit upset or unraveled some of the arrangements of the Good Friday Agreement or certainly the fragile constitutional and political arrangements uh, that that were constructed uh, 25 years ago 
So, so that was my main focus. And then obviously, well, I was in Ireland last week just on a break and I, I was watching Joe Biden's visit to Ireland, North and South, which got, of course, uh, wall-to-wall coverage. So that, that was very interesting to, to look at and to, I suppose, to look at Ireland in the context of the Good Friday Agreement and reflecting on 25 years of peace, but also the difference between Ireland today, in especially the south of Ireland, and what it was like 25 years ago, and that ongoing relationship with America, which Joe Biden talked about a lot in his speeches. And I didn't know this, but you're from Northern Ireland yourself. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm from Derry. I mean, I, I grew up in Derry, uh, which is right on the border, and and was very central to a lot of the big violent episodes of of the Northern Ireland Troubles. So I grew up with the Troubles, and you know, ha- have have that particular sensibility when talking about uh, Northern Ireland. And but but then you know, Derry, I suppose, managed to recover quite quickly from the Troubles because it did have a different geographical complexion compared to other parts of Northern Ireland. And I think it did have a consciousness raising energy about it in the 1980s as as the Troubles were coming to a climax and then then tapering off. You know, Derry was, you know, a, a very thoughtful place because it had suffered so much violence and it a lot of the energy that came out of Derry at that time was put to very good use. And, and, you know, we do have ongoing efforts in Derry to reconcile the two communities. We have a peace bridge, uh, footbridge that was built across the river that was funded by European money, actually. And, you know, there have been a lot of efforts there to address the legacy of the troubles and the violence. And, and they, they've been very worthy and, and very worthwhile. And what was it like for you growing up under the troubles? Well, I was, I was a kid. I mean, I, I moved to Derry when I was six years old, and that was in 1971, which was really the height of the Troubles. And I remember at that age being very excited because soldiers and bombs and guns were had a great appeal to, to a six-year-old. I'd been born in, in a place called Port Stewart, which is a quiet seaside town, but an hour's drive from Derry. But then my father moved there for work. So, yeah, I mean, it was... I mean, at that age, you internalize what you see and what you hear a lot and just becomes part of normal life. And, you know, there, there was a lot of disruption. Uh, you know, we could hear bombs going off. We could hear gunfire. At my brother's school, there was a lot of violence because it was, it was quite close to some of the hotspots where there were clashes between the IRA and, and uh, the British Army. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was happening around you. I mean, luckily, I didn't suffer any direct consequences in terms of family members injured or killed. But it was something that was around you and certainly shaped your outlook growing up, especially around the time of the IRA hunger strikes in the early 1980s. I was a teenager at that point. I used to go up actually to watch the rioting between gangs of of youths and and the police and the army. So that was my kind of window on, on the troubles. And... Yeah, so then as, as a reporter, I for RTE in particular, I would then cover a lot of the events that happened in the lead-up to the Good Friday Agreement and, and subsequently. It's perhaps a bit of a strange question, but I have to ask as a fan myself, what did you think of Dairy Girls, the TV show? I mean, I'm, I'm delighted that it's doing so well, and I am amazed at the appeal of it. Well, it, it seems to have caused quite a bit of a cultural movement in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's seen as a 
a great way to deal with the issues around the troubles that are in a safe and fresh and lighthearted way, uh, which wouldn't have been possible at the time. So it's it's great to have this retrospective on on what was happening in Derry in the 1990s. I mean, I remember it very clearly, and that that's all captured very well. But it's it's given this surreal comedic treatment which is a good way of remembering that we have moved on from that period because we can have that approach to something like that. And it's it's gone down very well. It's given a huge new complexion to tourism in Derry. Like I was driving out of Derry last week and passing the Everglades Hotel where they have a big sign saying, Derry Girls Themed Afternoon Tea, <laughs> which I don't know how that works, but uh, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly something that people are capitalizing on as, as, as best I can. You weren't curious about trying it out? No, I, I wasn't, <laughs> but uh, one day I'll get to it. <laughs> and um, so you, you were already working for RTE in the lead up to the Good Friday Agreement. What was that period like? I actually joined RTE the week of the IRA ceasefire in 1994. And, you know, that, that was a, up until that point, there had been a really horrific upsurge in violence in, in the early 1990s and, and the late 1980s. It was, it was a really terrible time and people really thought there there was no end in sight, that this would go on for a long time. But then you had uh, the what they call the Hume-Adams talks between John Hume, the leader of the Nationalist uh, Constitutional Party of the STLP, and Gerry Adams, the leader of Sinn Féin, which of course was the political wing of the IRA. They were secret talks which started to create the embryo of a set of negotiations which would ultimately lead to the Good Friday Agreement. And then there was the involvement of Bill Clinton and, and the US government from 1994 onwards. Um, that was seen as a very important element in giving another dimension to the conflict that would be helpful. So, there, you know, there there was an IRA ceasefire. The ceasefire was, was broken in 1996. I remember the day that the IRA ceasefire was broken because the an IRA man called the RT newsroom. I was actually in the newsroom to announce that the IRA was ending its ceasefire. And there was a, a system in place where if the IRA contacted RTE, they had a password. And this was such big news that nobody in the newsroom could really believe that it was happening, even though the password was genuine. And I remember a colleague sitting around a computer screen which had typed out the statement saying that the IRA was ending its ceasefire. And it was such big news that they were almost afraid to hit send on, on the email, on the message, and, and broadcast it on the news. And so it didn't appear on the six o'clock news and the, the IRA man called back saying, why is it not on the news? And uh, so, some other calls were made then with, with, a, with a senior political correspondent who was in touch with the IRA and then and then it it, it went on the news then yeah. uh, about 6.30 Irish time. What was the impact of that? Well, the immediate impact was 20 minutes later, the bomb in Canary Wharf went off, uh, killing two people, and uh, that was a very shocking event. So it, it was a very heightened, intense period that the in terms of Northern Ireland and, and the trying to convert the both ceasefires, the IRA and the Loyalist ceasefires, into a political process that would lead to negotiation. And and it, it was never clear that it would actually happen and, and that, that we could go back into the spiral. But 
thankfully it did it did happen in the end. And not an easy time to be a reporter, I can imagine, because you're always a little bit on a on a balancing act. Well, I mean, it was a, ve- a very it was a very exciting time to be a reporter. There was just so much happening, and you know, there was huge attention on Northern Ireland from like from Washington. You know, it's Northern Ireland's a tiny place, but it has this outsized relevance to 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 big relationships like Ireland and the UK and the UK and and, and Washington. So there was a big political dimension to it. And then, of course, there were other stories that were happening in parallel to the peace process, to to the ceasefires, like the marching season. There are loyalist or Protestant marches that that were happening in Catholic areas in during the summer months. And th- these then, I suppose the violence that had been held in check by the ceasefires got somehow displaced into the marching season. And they became very violent standoffs and, and clashes between marchers and, and the police or marchers and you know Protestant marchers and Catholic uh, residents. So these would happen nearly every year in the months after the ceasefire, in the years after the ceasefires. So I would go up and cover those for, for RTE again, which was, which was quite a big story. Well, if you read reports from the time, it seems almost a miracle that the, the deal, the Good Friday Agreement, came through. How did you perceive that at the time? Well, there you know there was just so much pressure, and I think once all the parties were in the process, and once the pressure came on from Washington and London and Dublin, then I think everybody felt that this was this was going to be a no turning back moment that all sides would have to just stick with it and get an agreement because they felt that. If they couldn't get an agreement at that stage, then we could be going back to another 10 or 20 years of, of violence and, and stalemate. So there was a famous phrase by Tony Blair when he said he felt the hand of history on his shoulder. A day like today, I mean, it's not a day for sort of sound bites, really. Um, we can leave those at home, but I feel that I feel the hand of history upon our shoulder in respect to this. I really do. and. I just think we need to acknowledge that and respond to it. Now, maybe it's impossible to find a way with food. Maybe even with the best faith in the world, you can't do it. But it's right to try. So I'm here to try. That seemed to capture that sense that this had to be done by whatever means and all sides had to sign up to it. And they got there in the end. I mean, it was a very complex interlocking set of arrangements that dealt with the relationships between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland relationships between the North and the South, relationships between Ireland and the UK. The phrase was the totality of relationships. And that was the way they managed to unpick the knot of sectarianism to give all sides a sense that they had got something out of the uh, achievement, even though you know, a lot of people felt cheated or they felt disenchanted with the outcome. It, it was a remarkable achievement. And it, it happened, you know, like any negotiation in the weeks running up to it, there was so much negativity from all sides that they could never accept this. But then at the last moment, in the last couple of days, they managed to get a deal and they rushed out the deal very quickly. And how do you analyze its success 25 years on? I saw a story from you a few days ago, um, a reportage for RT when you were in Derry to mark the 20th anniversary. And of course, it seems almost a world of reference five years ago in comparison to now because you have all these Brexit complexities. There, do you do you see that shift? Well, the 
I mean, the the peace that we've had has has largely held. I mean, there have been flare-ups of violence by especially dissident Republicans on the nationalist side over the past 25 years, and there are still major sectarian tensions between both communities integrating education so that Protestants and Catholics are educated together. That's been a slow and difficult process for various reasons. And then Brexit came along and exacerbated everything because that, again, broke down on sectarian lines. So unionists were more likely to vote for Brexit and then nationalists were more likely to vote against Brexit. And then, of course, even though a majority of people in Northern Ireland voted against Brexit, it still happened. And then you had all the negotiations with the EU to try and mitigate the damage. And and that, that again, polarised everyone. So it has been a very, very slow and difficult journey, but there is still peace by and large. And, of course, the political structures that were created by the Good Friday Agreement have been in abeyance, uh, and that's all connected to Brexit. But, you know, the... the like n- nobody is saying we should turn back the clock. I mean that that's that's for certain. Everybody believes that this this should continue, and that it it is really requires all sides to work very hard to make it work. You referred to the the power sharing executive in Stormont, which has been arguably one of the least successful parts of the Good Friday Agreement, as it's since uh, I believe since 1998, it is almost a third of the time it hasn't been working. And the past few years, even 60% of the time it hasn't been working. Could you explain to our listeners what that is about? Why is it such a, a difficult balance and why is it so e- easily blocked, this power sharing initiative? Yeah, so the, the Good Friday Agreement created various uh, structures, political structures in Northern Ireland. The centerpiece is the power sharing executive and the, the Northern Ireland Assembly. So the Assembly is a legislative body that people elect members to. They're called MLAs, members of a legislative assembly. And then there's a kind of a government called the Northern Ireland Executive. So these two bodies work in tandem with each other. But the nature of the peace settlement is such that both communities have to consent to the way things work on various policies and issues it requires both the loyalist and the nationalist communities to agree to something, which is a very noble and sensible and logical thing to, to try and achieve because of the, the nature of the conflict. But the problem is that that gives both sides essentially a veto to, to pull the plug if, if they're not happy. So that's, you know, in the early days... Part of the peace agreement was that the IRA had to decommission their weapons and that, and they didn't agree to that for a long time. And the circumstances in which they did agree to it were so contrived and complicated that the Unionist Party said, well, we don't trust them, we don't believe they've got rid of their weapons. So that held everything up. And then there have been other scandals and issues relating, for example, to the Irish language, where the nationalist side have said... We're not happy with this. And I mean, there, there was a scandal involving a renewable heating system, which involved a lot of public money, that there was allegedly a whitewash over it, and the nationalist side were not happy with that. So then they pulled the plug on the executive in 2017. And then when it was about to get back up and running, then the unionist side were unhappy with the post-Brexit trade arrangements. So, so it, it's... 
The problem is that there has always been an excuse for, for one side or the other to say, look, we're not happy, and because we have this veto, we're going to use the veto. And that, that has meant for a very difficult period in terms of continuity and getting things running and getting people used to the system. So there is talk of revising the Good Friday Agreement, uh, changing it in some shape or form, but nobody really wants to do that at a moment when things are already very complicated and controversial with Brexit. And of course, as you mentioned, the Democratic Unionist Party, the, the main Unionist Party, still isn't agreeing to revive the Stormont institutions because of the the Northern Ireland Protocol, that part of the Brexit Treaty with the UK and the EU, which means there are very specific trading arrangements for Northern Ireland. It's still in the single market, in the EU single market, whereas the rest of the UK is gone from the single market. So unionists think that Northern Ireland is being treated differently from the rest of the UK. So as unionists, they say, we're not having that. So that's that's really why there's, there's been that problem. Well, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol was revamped uh, earlier this year as the Windsor framework. Do you think that had a big impact or the DUP still doesn't seem to be quite content with its current framework? Well, the, the Windsor framework was a big deal because it, it does revise key elements of the Northern Ireland Protocol and it it does, on paper at least, make the trading arrangements a lot easier and deals with a lot of issues that the DUP had. But the DUP is still not going in to Stormont. Why is that? Well, most people think that it's because in May there are local elections and the DUP is a grassroots party. It, it needs its local councillors to provide the lifeblood and, and to, to walk, you know, knock on doors and spread the message. And I think the party leadership don't want to soften their position before that election because they are under pressure from the more extreme unionist, traditional unionist voice party. They have been losing votes to them. So they want to try and maximize their public support ahead of the May elections. And, and most people think that that's why they've still not given in to, to return to Stormont. But a lot of people think after May, perhaps in September, they will return, possibly a graduated return, maybe not fully. But remember, the DUP didn't support the Good Friday Agreement when it came out, but over time they didn't object to it. And then there were various add-on agreements to the Good Friday Agreement, which allowed the DUP to take up their, their seats in Stormont. It was remarkable when um, there were all these high-profile visits the past few weeks, that there was so much focus on trying to get Stormont running and there were all these different approaches. You mentioned earlier that Northern Ireland is... is in comparison, or relatively speaking, a, quite a tiny region, but it, so much attention and focus is on it at the time uh, by Washington and arguably now again. What is it about Northern Ireland that it makes it such a such a focal point in terms of international politics? Before we spoke about the troubles and now we're speaking about Brexit, it seems to have become also the kind of heartland. Is it due to its its unique position to paraphrase Rishi like Sunak? <laughs> we just like to, people to be interested in us. No, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Well, first of all, it was a serious and really tr you know, heartbreaking political conflict in Northern Ireland for, for 30 years. Not, not political, but, but actually a military conflict between the various communities and, and the British army and, and, and police force, which was a huge issue in, in the 1970s and 1980s. It took up a huge amount of political and military bandwidth for the UK government and 
you know, that in turn was the outworking of a set of post-colonial arrangements that dated back to 1921 and the independence of Ireland, the partition of the country. But I think the real reason why Northern Ireland occupies this outsized space in geopolitics is because of Irish America. You know, in, in the 19th century, millions of Irish people, particularly during the, the Great Famine in the late 1840s, emigrated to America and seeded a, a, a very vibrant political cohort or population in America called Irish Americans. And especially after John F. Kennedy became president, Irish America became a, a, a much more identifiable voting block in, in American politics. And then when the conflict in Northern Ireland blew up just after John F. Kennedy's time as president, the IRA in particular sought support and, and money and weapons from Irish American communities. So Irish America had skin in the game, as, as, as you say. And then I think just for emotional reasons for Irish American presidents or presidents in general, they decided that this was worth getting involved in. And you had some Irish politicians like John Hume who, who would go to America and articulated very powerfully the nature of the conflict and how they believed it could be solved. I mean, John Hume and David Trimble on both sides went on to win the Nobel Prize. So so that was a big factor in keeping the issue alive in America and and pushing it onto the, the, the desk in the White House. And, you know, once America gets involved in a geopolitical conflict, then it becomes a big, a big issue, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Here is U.S. President Joe Biden speaking at Ulster University in Belfast on April 12th during an event to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Those of you who've been to America know that there is a, uh, there is a large population that is invested in what happens here, that cares a great deal about what happens here. Supporting the people of Northern Ireland, protecting the peace, preserving the Belfast Good Friday Agreement is a priority for Democrats and Republicans alike in the United States. And that is unusual today because we've been very divided on our parties. It has implications for Ireland's relationship with America, but more importantly, with the UK's relationship with America. That's that's always been tempered by by what's going on in Ireland. I mean, famously... Bill Clinton agreed to get a visa for Jerry Adams to to visit America, the Sinn Féin president, back in in the nineteen early nineteen nineties, against the wishes of the British government and the State Department. You know, which which was a big step, and people say it was now a very important step to try and get him to. I mean, if he could sell the the peace initiative to Irish America and IRA supporters in America, then that was a, that was an important development. And then finally, at EU level, I mean, the, the, you remember the, the peace agreement in Ireland happened after the, the terrible bloodletting in Yugosla former Yugoslavia in the Balkans, where the EU was left standing and left quite embarrassed by the fact that this terrible ethnic bloodletting had happened on its doorstep and the EU was pretty much powerless to stop it. Here was a peace process that they could get involved in, which did seem to have become successful and the EU of course generated a couple of income streams called Peace One and Peace Two. Billions of euro that was that was 
channeled into Northern Ireland, specifically designed to fund cross-community projects, projects dealing with reconciliation. And in fact, the model that they used, uh, EU regional affairs uh, officials took that model to different parts of the world, like Colombia. The officials went to talk to FARC guerrillas about the Northern Ireland peace process and how funding could be used to help reconciliation. So Northern Ireland was, you know, had an outsized influence and relevance in, in world affairs for all these reasons. Small region with a very, very big impact, mm. even so today. So, Tony, a little bit more about you. You've been um, in Brussels for a long time. Mm. What are some of your favorite anecdotes or experiences working here as a correspondent, apart from singing at summits? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinarily stimulating job to do because, especially in the first few years I was here, you know, because I'm I'm covering all of Europe for RTE, so that means covering all that's happening in the EU, but also things that happen outside the sphere of, of EU politics. So you could be talking about elections in other countries, plane crashes, natural disasters. So in the first few years, you know, before I had kids, especially, you know, I was just traveling all the time. And, you know, you could be arriving back from a three or four days of really intense reporting on a particular election or or a new pope or whatever, and then arrive back in Brussels and you've got to go to a dinner to, to meet a commissioner about to talk about, uh, you know, some geopolitical issue or some key moment. And so it, so I've, I find it, you know, highly stimulating very exciting, exhausting, very confusing as well, the first number of years, because there's so much to try and process and, and develop uh, mentally. But then after after 2008, 2009, you had the big financial crash, the banking crisis, the euro debt crisis. From that point on, things seemed to change in terms of my reporting profile, because you were dealing with big omni-crises like banking or for the, the financial crisis, then you had the Greek debt crisis. These were stories which consumed nearly all your time. And then you had, whereas before that, I was just dipping in and out of like dozens and dozens of different stories in different countries. But now you had these big issues which were seismic, which were almost existential for the EU. And, and that just meant that you were much more immersed in, in one, one topic at a time. So I remember the financial crisis, the Greek debt crisis, going back and forward to Athens time and again with the dedicated headline camera crew of course <laughs> and then you had you know the, the the terror attacks you had the migration crisis then you had brexit and then you had the coronavirus then you had the ukraine war so we, so since 2008 2009 we've had in brussels we've had one big all-consuming issue after another and that's that's a different way of reporting but it's still you know it's like you know brussels is an amazing clearinghouse for so much policy and politics and geopolitical drama, that there's always something to do here. There's always something to report on. And something I've always wanted to ask you, the Brexit expertise, is it something, how did it come about? Is it because you're in a unique position as a correspondent or a reporter originally from Northern Ireland, or was it just out of pure fascination for the beast that is Brexit? Or Well, it, it, it was a couple of things. I mean, I, like before the Brexit referendum, first of all, you know, in Brussels, most people thought that it would be a, a, a Remain vote and then we'd all move on. So I don't think many people had really sat down and mentally wargamed in their heads 
what would it mean if the UK left? You know, there were there were certain think tanks that were writing papers about what Brexit would mean for the UK economically and politically, and those think tanks' conclusions were just so grim about what Brexit would mean for the UK that that contributed to this sense that it's never going to happen. You know, but then of course it did happen, and the I mean the Irish government had been kind of warning about what a leave vote would mean for Northern Ireland. But they were also concerned about what a leave vote would mean for trade between Ireland and the UK. Had you expected it yourself? No, I, I, th- I thought it would be a narrow victory for Remain. But but it was funny, mainly because I was, you know, I was around, you know, from, from April to June 2016, I was starting to read some of these uh, analyses and think tank reports. And the more I read, the more I thought, well, it'd be crazy to leave. Like, why Why would you Why would you do that? But then anecdotally, I noticed that people would come back from London for a weekend and they would say, to Brussels, and they would say, yeah, I mean, I talked to my girlfriend's brother and he's uh, he's going to vote leave. And, uh, or he, or, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal, yep. you know, static coming across about people voting no or not sure and... Uh, and so there, there was that sort of voice saying, "This might not go the way people think it's going to go." So then, once the once the vote happened, you know, because the Irish government had been warning about the issues, then of course the Northern Ireland element became prominent quite early on in the process after the referendum, but not not in any great detail because both the Irish and the UK governments were saying we're not going back to the borders of the past, okay, and the EU was saying that as well. But it was only once. October, November, December 2016 came along and Theresa May, of course, had become Prime Minister and she made that famous speech at the Tory party conference in 2016 saying Brexit means Brexit. You know, we're leaving the single market and the customs union. At that point, people began to say, well, hang on a second. How can you leave the customs union and single market and then say there aren't going to be any borders? And it, it was at that point where I was starting to look a bit more deeply into this and just developing contacts. And yes, you know, because I had grown up in Northern Ireland, this felt an especially important issue for me. Because I write and broadcast in English, then just by by an extension of that, whatever I was writing or broadcasting was then going to be picked up elsewhere. And thanks to Twitter, you know, you can promote your, your work to a wider audience. And I started to write a couple of articles in, in, in the autumn of 2016 about you know, like, how is this all going to work? You know, this idea of no borders. And yet, if you leave the customs union and single market, then this is the consequence. And I started to write some longer articles for the RT website. And on the strength of that, Penguin, the publisher contacted me and said, but would you know, would you like to write a book about Brexit in Ireland? And I said, yes. And then in the sort of first three or four months of 2017, I started to write this book, which was an incredibly difficult and intense project because... I had to do a deep dive into all sorts of things that related to Britain leaving the EU, you know, unscrambling the omelette, what that would mean for Ireland, for Northern Ireland. And then, of course, at the same time, the Irish government were essentially outsourcing their Brexit policy to the European Commission, to Michel Barnier. So there was a whole intrigue kind of backroom diplomacy story that was unfolding in Brussels that I could try and get into. And, you know, because I was writing the book and because I started to acquire a bit of knowledge with this, then you start to acquire a bit of credibility. 
and the more credibility you have as a reporter, then the more people will talk to you. And and so so then I just found myself for all these reasons in the kind of cockpit of of reporting on this. And um, and then you know the more you report on it, the more you want to report on it. And there's this kind of fear as a journalist that you might miss something. So so you have to make sure that you're doing everything you can to stay across all the issues. And then you're trying to expand your list of contacts. And you know to a lot of people in the European Union. They had no idea uh, really about Ireland or about the Irish peace process. You know, the further away you get from the seaboard of Europe, you know, why would people in Croatia know about the Northern Ireland peace process and what Brexit might mean for cross-border cattle uh, trade or milk production? So when I when I when I had written the book and it came out, then people, you know, I found that people were looking to my book as as a guide to 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 the to the complexity of of the Brexit story. So there was, again, there was a bit of a virtuous circle there. And that, that's why I ended up just becoming a bit of an expert on, on Brexit at that time. Unscrambling the omelette, I think that's the best <laughs> description yeah. I've heard about uh, understanding Brexit. Yeah. And you have three sons. Do yeah. they understand what you do? Well, my, my older son, Matteo, who's going to be 16 soon. Yeah, I mean, he was, he lives in Rome. So I, I would go and see him in Rome every every other weekend. And I remember like writing the book on my laptop while he was doing his homework when the book came out, I, I wrote a little note on it about how he would be doing his homework and I'd be writing the book next to him. And uh, so he he understood that I was writing this thing, but he, he had a very negative image of Brexit because it meant that I was away more than I wanted to be. And uh, that I was, when I was in Rome seeing him, I was often taking phone calls. So at a certain point, I was not allowed to use the word Brexit. I had to use the word Voldemort. <laughs> so uh, so um, th- that was how he processed it. Again, I, I think some people would agree with that nickname. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> oh, well. And um, there's one part of your biography. Um, in preparation of our talk, I looked into what uh, your parkour had been. And there's one part that I found particularly intriguing that I wanted to check with you. You, of course, have a, a very impressive career, but... Here in particular, at the beginning of your career, I found a statement saying, after failing to qualify for a course in the National Institute for Higher Education, he moved to London to work on a construction site. He was laid off at the first day. What's yeah, the story so, behind that? So the when, when I graduated, I, I had an arts degree from Trinity College and I applied for a graduate course in journalism which was, yeah, it was run by the NIHE uh, in Dublin at the time. It, I think it was a very small course, 25 places. And I, I didn't I, di- I didn't get uh, an interview even at that point. So I decided to take a year out and go to London. This was 1987. A lot of Irish people at that time went to London or America. It was, it was economically, it was, it was a very low point in, in, in Ireland at that, at that time. A lot of people, when they graduated, would have gone to London and I went over just to take a year out and yeah I mean there are a lot of Irish work in construction and I remember so I signed up I would go along to this place in London at 5am and you, you get you get what they call a start you know you, there, there'll be a there'll be an agency that would hire construction workers for, for a day or a week or a month or whatever and I, I got a, I got my start and <laughs> the first day I, m- I remember it was a multi-story car park in Soho that was being demolished and my job was to wheelbarrow rubble on the roof to a, to a, one of these chutes that go down outside the front of a building and the stuff would go in there and into a skip and I was told to make sure there was no wood in the rubble because the wood would block up the chute 
And for some reason, some wood got in and I got blamed for it. So I, I got fired on my first day. Very inauspicious start. But then I got then I got a start the next day for another construction site, which I which I worked on for about four months. But then I was, you know, I was very keen to try and get into journalism. And, you know, I, I, I eventually I, I got a course in, in the London School of Journalism and it started there. And then I, my first newspaper job was actually in, in Oxford with a small local paper in Oxford. So that got me going, that got me started. That's where all the fascination for unscrambling eggs started. Yeah, exactly. In That's the construction. Right. Yeah. The fact that you grew up in the Troubles, is that part of what inspired you to be a journalist? I mean, possibly like I, I suppose at the time when I was a sort of teenager and thinking about what I could be, I, I, I was good at English and I, I you know, I, I, I was good at sort of writing and I thought I'd like to be a writer and, you know, that, that journalism would be, uh, you know, a choice to, to, to try and make, you know, a career that would, I could use my, my writing skills. But I, I, I didn't actually spend much time, certainly at university, reading newspapers or trying to understand the craft, not of writing, but of being a journalist. And that, that sort of, I had to kind of work at that for a while after I graduated and started getting into the whole, you know, get, getting into the postgraduate diploma in journalism. You know, the, the skills that you need, which are just curiosity and you need a certain ballsiness to be a journalist, to be able to approach perfect strangers and get information out of them which certainly didn't come naturally to me at the time I was I was quite shy with strangers and so that was a skill I, I had to develop but you know what during that period during college and then in, in the years afterwards it was a very torrid and violent time in Northern Ireland and I was you know I was really passionately interested in the subject and there were some great writers and journalists in the UK covering Northern Ireland. I remember David McKittrick, who was a legendary correspondent for the London Independent. You know, the brothers working for the Guardian and the Times. And I, you know, I was really moved by their writing. And, you know, I suppose that fueled my interest in becoming a journalist because, you know, I just thought it's it's a it's a vital part of a society and a democracy to have people who can report what's happening. And, you know, a lot of what was happening at that time in Northern Ireland, you know, there was a sense as a nationalist, that the UK government was covering up a lot of stuff. You know, there was there was a shoot to kill inquiry. There was a there were three IRA members shot dead in Gibraltar in you know in very brutal circumstances. And you know, if you were a nationalist, there seemed to be a lot of occasions where the UK government was covering up, or the UK sort of security system was covering up what was happening. And there were very very courageous UK journalists who were actually uncovering a lot of this stuff. There was World in Action, a TV documentary, Panorama on the BBC. A lot of really crusading journalists did tremendous work in Northern Ireland. And I think that, you know, I looked up to them and that tradition of, you know, fearless reporting. And, you know, you had a lot of pushback from Margaret Thatcher and you had court action to try and prevent broadcasters reporting on certain things. Uh, So that was something that I suppose inspired me at the time. Well, there's this phrase that goes, um, "Journalism is is literature in a hurry," so it it makes yeah. sense in your parkour. Yeah. Well, my f- my favorite aphorism for journalism is Mark Twain, who says that a journalist's job is to make people interested in something they have absolutely no interest mm-hmm. in. That you know that I think that's a great skill to have. And I suppose one one of the one of the challenges, and but one of the thrills I think of reporting Brexit was that you know at a glance from the outset. 
how the single market works and how the customs union works is not interesting. It's very technical, dry stuff. But when you infuse that issue with politics and history, like in Northern Ireland, you can make it interesting and you can make it vivid. And, and that was something that I really tried to do during that time as, as, as a reporter on Brexit, especially when I was writing longer pieces on the RT website, trying to explain the, the twists and turns and why EU rules on agri-food products were suddenly a vital part of the negotiations. Because if you had two different systems on each side of the border on the island of Ireland, then you could, you would overnight, you would just scupper a huge tradition of, of milk processing. There were all sorts of all-Ireland all processes that were agricultural, that were very economically successful. Bailey's Irish Cream, world-famous brand, is made thanks to 5,000 lorries crossing the border every, mm-hmm. uh, every week or, or every year. You know, so, so, so like finding those examples that would make something real to, to the readers was the key. I think you've just described what it means to be a good EU correspondent to start with source material like EU legislation that no one really knows or understands. It's mm. extremely far from, from regular Europeans and yeah. finding a way to translate it. Yeah, and, and it, it, only, it only becomes vital or controversial for people once these, these rules take effect. And then, like, that's what happened with Brexit. You had this tradition and culture in the UK of blaming Brussels for everything and why are we doing this and why are we doing that? Nobody at the time was reporting on why these rules were being negotiated and the role the British government would have had in negotiating them as a member state. So it is important that, you know, EU policy is done right journalistically. It's a challenge. It's hard. You know, a lot of times it is dry and dull and boring, but you've got to find ways to make it interesting because it is going to affect people's lives, people's jobs, you know, consumer rights environmental legislation, they're all vital things in the end. And you started your uh, career in in one conflict, the Troubles, and you uh, now are in another big one. You were famously present in in Kyiv when the war started. What was that like? Yeah, so in in the run-up to the war in 2022, you know, there there was a period where, you know, there was clearly a big build-up of Russian troops and there was a geopolitical tension and you had various people zooming off to Moscow to try and convince Vladimir Putin not to invade. And a lot of people thought he was bluffing and he wanted to try and maximize concessions from the West. But then in the early part of 2022, it looked like it was really going to happen. So the idea was that you had to be there, you know, for us, for RTE, the decision was we need to be there when the invasion happens. But but how do you time that? If you go like too early, then it could be a waste of resources. Or if you well, if you go too late, it's too late. Um, but so we, we'd gone actually in the early part of February last year for about a week and the invasion didn't happen. And then we came back to Brussels for a couple of days. We had some fairly complicated childcare issues, which I had to deal with. But then it it was really starting to look imminent. So then we went back on the Wednesday, which I think was the 23rd of February and I mean I remember being down in Maidan Square that evening we had done a live broadcast into the 6 o'clock news on RTE then we were going to do another live broadcast into the 9 o'clock news which is 11 o'clock key of time so we were kind of spending a lot of time in, in Maidan and I was getting alerts on my phone saying that the Americans were saying it's imminent it's imminent but there wasn't any 
real sense of panic on the streets. I mean, the streets were a little bit quieter than usual, but for example, we went in to get something to eat in a bar and we were watching Champions League football and there were lots of people there. And then I went back, we went back up to the hotel and at 4 a.m., 4.30, I think, I, I woke up suddenly, not sure what had woken me up and I looked at my phone and I saw these alerts, you know, gunfire in Kiev, bomb attack on Kiev airport. Vladimir Putin announces the invasion. So that was a, a like, sit up in bed and go, what the actual, what what are we going to do now? Now, everybody had assumed that if Russia invaded, then they would capture Kiev within a few days. So the, the immediate question at, at 4.30 a.m. was, what do we do? Do we leave? I contacted a taxi guy that had brought us back to the airport, uh, sorry, had brought us to the hotel that night from our final live broadcast. He picked up on the phone at 5am and I said, if we need you to take us to Lviv in Western Ukraine, can you do it? And he said, yeah. I called a number of editors in Dublin. I spoke to our deputy foreign editor who said, well, look, you know, your safety is paramount. Do what you think is best. I contacted a, a friend who's a camera woman for Channel 4 News. She was in Kramatorsk with her correspondent. I spoke to her. Her advice was stay put for the moment. Go, you know, the Russians are not going to bomb a hotel where there's lots of foreign journalists. And the, we were staying in the Radisson. There were lots of foreign journalists there. So I came downstairs and there were a lot of people getting up and a lot of people moving around. The manager of the hotel was great. He, he got sandwiches and coffee going. We all went down into the basement, two floors below. And for the next three or four hours, we were under the Radisson Hotel reporting on what was happening. We were hearing airstrikes. You know, we were discussing among colleagues, like, what do we do? Do we try and leave? Do we wait until the Russians come in and say, you know, hand ourselves over to their tender mercies? And it was a very hard thing to do and, and to, to, to figure out. And, you know, I was in contact with the news desk in Dublin all the time saying, like, what do you think? I mean, you know, at the same time, we had to produce a lot of content. Like, I was writing articles for the website we were doing endless live reports. We were editing in the basement of the Radisson. You know, we went out we, we, you know, on the streets of Kiev uh, already at nine o'clock in the morning. There were people rushing back and forth with suitcases, carrying children, carrying pets. Suddenly, the real horror of lives being upended literally overnight was unfolding before our eyes. It was an extremely surreal, bizarre. People just didn't know what to do. We met a couple and their cat from, they were from Azerbaijan. They were living in Kiev. You know, where where are they going to go? How do they get to Azerbaijan suddenly? And then, you know, there was this huge river of humanity that was pouring out of Kiev, heading to the west of Ukraine and heading over the Polish border and so on. And we were trying to juggle all these things while still reporting like, you know, hour to hour on what was happening. And so we spent two or three days in Kiev in that situation and eventually... The manager of the hotel said, look, I can't guarantee your safety any longer. We're losing staff. We're going to have to close the hotel. So at that point, we decided we had to leave. And our driver managed to get us all in. Uh, and we headed off at midday on the Saturday and headed to towards the west of Ukraine. And we got as far as Rivna, about two thirds of the way to Lviv. And we stayed the night there. And then the next day we, we got to Lviv. We stayed in Lviv for another week reporting on what was happening there and reporting on the invasion. I mean, it was a, f- a thrilling time as a journalist, but it was very disorientating. And of course, you know, we arrived in a pre-invasion situation. So we, you know, we didn't have that much cash. We had credit cards. 
But then after a few days in a war economy, your credit card is not going to get you very far. So then we had to look at our resources and, and try and figure out how long can we stay? And we couldn't stay very long because we were running out of cash. Uh, so at that point, we worked up a plan to, to get out and we, we eventually got out after after about a week in, in Lviv. If you read reports from that time, everyone seems to remember, even if when it comes to EU officials or everyone here working in, in journalism, seems to have a very vivid memory of where they were when the invasion started. Was that the same? Well, of course, it was the same for you. But Yeah, I mean, it was... It was um, Yeah, it was, an, it was an incredible moment that I'll always look back on, just a one of sheer, what do we do, you know? And why do you think that was? Is it because it was really this particular conflict was so game-changing? Well, I mean, this was this was a nuclear power with one of the biggest militaries in the world invading a smaller neighbor with every expectation that they would vanquish the country within days or certainly that the capital of the government would fall within days, so... What did that mean? I remember there was Ukrainian intelligence released a report that they had got of the Russian invasion plan and Russia was going to knock out communications, knock out power, land 10,000 paratroopers in the capital, cause division and chaos, fear, round up people to be executed. And you know this report landed in my phone the morning of the invasion. So oh. so, you, so you're trying to think, okay, well, what is my strategy or what's my option? And, you know, I've got three kids at home. How do I make sure that they're not going to lose their dad? So, you know, it was, it was a very fraught kind of moment. But, you know, you have to just keep your wits about you. And then also this idea of strength in numbers, like just talking to other journalists, how do we deal with this? What's the best option? At one point, it was, we were told it was too dangerous to drive out of Kiev. We didn't want to drive at night time. So you were constantly juggling these options that you had to take, thinking of your own safety, thinking of your, you know, your instinct to keep reporting the news. You know, it's not great to sort of flee the story. But yeah, it was it was a very an extremely unsettling thing to have to cover. But you know, I suppose the fact that your one half of your brain is still thinking, ah, okay, there's been a development, I've got to file an audio, I've got to file do a live report, I've got to file copy. So the, the two sides of your brain, you know, the uh, your work side and your self-preservation side were kind of in conflict with each other the whole time. Did having kids change you as a reporter and the decisions you make? Well, it it doesn't it doesn't change the decisions you make. I mean, it just it just it makes you think a lot more carefully about what you're doing and and the the cool question of risk taking. I mean, when when I didn't have kids, then the only person that I have to worry about is myself, really. Well, my family back in Ireland, to to, have to keep them in mind as well. But, you know, when you have kids, that's a huge responsibility. And you start to think about, do I want to really take a risk when I'm there? Do I want to go down that road where there might be, you know, trouble? You, you absolutely think differently when you have kids. Yeah. And I can imagine you also need an, an element of luck, to put it in a very cliche way, the luck of the Irish, maybe. I remember a few weeks ago, was it a few weeks? No. When Biden visited Ukraine, you accidentally were there. Yeah. Was there? That was that was a sheer fluke. We had been planning to go back for the first anniversary of the invasion. And initially the plan was to go on the Wednesday before the day before, or two days before the anniversary and come back the following Wednesday. But I had actually missed a skiing trip with my family the previous year because of the invasion. And then... 
this year, again, the invasion landed in the school holidays in Belgium. So we had been talking about going skiing as a family. And so I moved our trip then back to the Monday rather than the Wednesday. And luckily I did because that was the day Joe Biden arrived and we were there when he arrived. So that was pure luck. <laughs> well, if anyone asks, you can always see them while well, you had supreme uh, intel from I, inside. I or... would be busted if I tried that. <laughs> I find out Tony, I could talk to you for hours. So many interesting stories. Maybe one final question. How do you look to the coming period? We've talked about a lot of major things happening at the moment. What is your prognosis for the coming period and what might be the big topics covering? Well, I think undoubtedly Russia's invasion of Ukraine is is going to dominate what I do for a long, long time. I, I you know, I think the nature of the regime and the Kremlin suggests that this is there's no easy way out. There's no exit ramp for Vladimir Putin and the West appears determined as ever to support Ukraine because the alternative is unthinkable for a lot of countries. So I think this is going to dominate my reporting because it has so many obvious effects politically, EU unity, energy prices, the environment, inflation, how the EU deals with its climate goals, with the Growth and Stability Pact, how the euro is managed. All of these other issues are now overshadowed by what's happening in Ukraine. So that's really going to be the big dominating issue. And in terms of Ireland and Northern Ireland? Well, the the Windsor framework, as you mentioned, is now in place and we have to wait to see how that works. But I should say that that relationship between Northern Ireland, Ireland and the EU and the UK is going to be ongoing. It's going to take a lot of managing because the way the Windsor framework is structured, it means that any EU single market rules that are being updated or introduced that affect Northern Ireland, there has to be hyper surveillance over what those rules are to make sure nobody in Northern Ireland gets offended or doesn't mess up the trading relationship between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. So it's going to be an ongoing kind of babysitting process that I'll have to try and keep across. Super. And if you do plan another gig soon in Brussels, please let us know. I will absolutely let you know. (laughs) Super. Thanks so much, Tony. Thanks, Margot. Pleasure.